Thanks for joining us on our U.S. Soccer President Candidate Forum Series. I'm Justin Brunken with the American Outlaws, and our goal is to help foster positive change for the Federation and U.S. Soccer by giving the candidates a platform to talk to and listen to our members, the fans. These forums are only possible because of our members' support. So feel free to become a member yourself, if you aren't already, at theamericanoutlaws.com. Visit our election page at voao.theamericanoutlaws.com forward slash ao dash election dash center. Yeah, I know it is a tad long, but it's where you can uh, see candidate questionnaires and the schedule for all the rest of the live forums. We'll see you at the next game in the stands. Listen and see if they address your issues and thoughts. Thanks and enjoy. This forum's with uh, Michael Winograd. Uh, he was talking to uh, Chris Donahue, who was helping host this event. Uh, we had a little bit of recording issues, so it just starts a few minutes into uh, the forum. By the way, as a recent college grad, it's going to cost you $1,500, and you're going to have to drive there and stay at a hotel on top of that. We're going to reduce the cost, and we can talk later if you want about how to do that because I've got plans. It's easier said than done, but we're going to reduce the cost because there are lots of funding sources that aren't being tapped into. That's the first thing we're going to do is we're going to make coaching more accessible. second thing I'm going to do is form a technical committee with the experts. I can talk soccer all day. I can talk the differences in coaching eight-year-olds versus 18-year-olds. I love it, but we're going to pull in former national team coaches technical directors. We're going to pull in experts to talk about what we should be focusing, what the priority in, in coaching development should be. We're going to make sure that there are minimum standards in coaching that we're implementing. You asked about the playing style. The U.S. national team needs a playing style. There is no question about that. I draw a line, though, there's a difference between requiring a playing style for the national team and those in the pool feeding up to the national team and the rest of the kids playing soccer. I don't believe that there will ever be one single playing style when you look at kids playing in New Mexico and Northern California and New Jersey and you know Florida. There are different geographies, different demographics. If, and the last thing that U.S. soccer should be doing is dictating to a coach in some local organization saying, hey, this is the style you need to play. You need to play a 4-3-3 with this kind of brand of soccer. Because the coach is going to look at you and say, I'm going to play what makes sense for the players that I have and in, and in, and in my league and what I'm doing. So when I talk about player, when I talk about player development, again, we can get to that a little bit later, but when I talk about player development, there is the restructuring the states on a state-by-state -state basis so that it makes sense in each state, the way things are structured, and we get rid of all this overlapping and lack of clarity. We need to clarify what everything is for and what leagues mean what and where things fit into the structure. On the national team side, for the elite player, I'm going to put a state soccer center in each state, and it's going to house fields, and it's going to house a state soccer director going to be a full-time paid employee. We're going to pay a competitive salary to make it a viable option to going and coaching Division I college or even MLS. And that, 
coach is going to be that state soccer director is going to be responsible for number one identification. Right? We need a we need to identify players better. We need to reach out. We don't we need to go beyond just calling coaches in certain leagues and saying who's your best two players. We need to go to all the leagues and make sure we're comprehensively thoroughly IDing talented players. Then we're going to work with the leagues with to have blackout dates. Bring the players to the state soccer center. And that is where we're going to dictate a style of play that is the U.S. style of play. U.S. soccer is going to tell all of the state soccer directors, when you are training kids at the state soccer center, and those are children that you think are elite and potentially going to feed into our national team, that is where we're going to have a heavier hand in saying this is what the style is. Other than that, with the rest of the world, America playing soccer, we're going to put out basic minimum standards, priorities that we think we should focus on, coaching conduct on the sideline, parent conduct, health and nutrition, but basic bullet points, easily digestible, state-of-the-art. We're not going to dictate and, and, you know, take, uh, you know, we're not going to dictate and, and take over and, and force people to, to, you know, act like puppets. We're going to let people have the discretion and the freedom to express themselves and coach and develop kids and players as they wish with minimum standards and on an even playing field. Yeah, I like the concept of that state soccer center. That's something that I've never heard before. I think I think that would be a, a very beneficial thing for a lot of people because coming from a place like, you know, if you're from the Midwest, if you're from Nebraska, Wyoming, sometimes you don't get this, the, the exposure and the discovery that you might if, if you're in a place like California or Florida or New York. So that, that's an interesting concept. Um, and, 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 and it also, it creates a visible center for U.S. soccer, and it creates a clearly defined path. If you're sitting in Kansas City and you want to know, if you say to yourself, but you may be sitting there saying as a, as a you know, 12, 13-year-old kid, I love soccer. I want to play it. I think I'm pretty good. I want to see how far I could go. Who knows? You may be saying, I'm, I, I, I'm starting to think I'm, I'm really competitive, and I'm hearing coaches tell me I'm competitive. I want to take a shot at the national team. I want to know if I'm good enough. Right now, there, you have no clarity. You don't know what to do. The state soccer center is going to be a visible base. It's going to be a clearly defined path so that everybody knows what that path to the national team is. And, and it's going to absolutely, like you said, give exposure and opportunity to everybody equally. That's great. Um, so kind of jumping topics here, um, one of the things that – um, several candidates, several fans and players have, have been critical of is, is some of the choices of, of venues that soccer has, has picked for certain teams. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are um, about U.S. soccer's choice in games for friendlies, for qualifiers, and uh, what changes do you think that you would make if you were elected? I, I, I will comment less on the merits of the decision as to where to play, and I'm more focused on the process for how those decisions were made. So in my mind, when you talk about venue, the quintessential example in my mind is the, the game against Costa Rica at Red Bull Arena. I was there with my family. I lived 30 minutes from Red Bull Arena, and I, you know, I, I loved it. It was a, an opportunity to take my family to a men's national team game, which we don't get to do very often. <clears throat> but you can talk about the merits of doing it in terms of marketing and size of stadium and atmosphere. You can talk about the, the cons 
about, you know, taking away a little bit of the home field advantage, and we can have that discussion. What concerns me is how the decision was made. And I re recall hearing after the loss, Bruce Arena talking and saying that he didn't have input into where the game was played. And the concept of a head coach of the men's national team in a game, in a critical game during a critical stretch of World Cup qualifying, the concept that he would not have not just input, but the, the overwhelming weight of the input into where that game gets played is I just can't explain it. And that's what really concerns me. In terms of where to play, there are, there are other games that could be played at Red Bull Arena for those great reasons, it's a, and it's a terrific venue. I don't know that a critical World Cup qualifier should have been one of them. And the reason for that, and this is, well, look, this is the American Outlaws, right? Home field advantage is called home field advantage for a reason. The, 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 the supporters create, anybody who's ever played knows, they, the, the players feed off the energy, the other fans feed off the energy, it creates an atmosphere, an energy, and an advantage for the team. And when you're playing high stakes games, you, you know, you want every advantage. I'll tell you something, it's no different than what, what you do in business. When, when, when lawyers take depositions, when, when CEOs schedule big meetings and negotiations, a tremendous amount of thought is put into where to hold the deposition, where to hold the business meeting, what will give me the greatest edge. Now, I don't have to go crazy about it. At the end of the day, you want to play the game and beat the other team by playing better than them. You don't go overboard to go out of your but, – but when you're looking at a host of venues and one is just as easy to play out as the other, you've got to think about home field advantage. And I just – it's just not clear to me. I'm, I'm sure you've seen there's a lot going on on Twitter right now with, with uh, Grant Wall just wrote about something about the, you know, the choice of venue and criticisms that Soccer United Marketing was making the decision. That was my I next don't, Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, and that goes to transparency and a lack right. of transparency. I don't know who is making the decisions. But, right. but again, when I, like you guys, you know, hear that Bruce Arena wasn't even consulted, that's very concerning to me. Absolutely. No, we're right there with you. We, um, we feel like we have a decent voice in the, in the American soccer scene, and um, it seems like there would be an opportunity for our members, um, chapters like that, that we can consult with and work together to come up with, you know, some ideas for different venues. And, it, and at times it hasn't, we haven't felt like we've gotten that opportunity. So that would be an interesting thing to, uh, to have more transparency more transparency into um, into where where the venues are selected and how they're selected more than anything. So yeah, and and you know one of the things you had asked about in the in the questions that you posted online was involvement of the fans. If there's anything, if there's if there's one thing more than anything else that the fans and the American Outlaws should be involved in, it's the decision as to where to play, Absolutely. because that decision is about a home field advantage that is generally created by you. Right. And and and. You know, there, there are, this is, this is one of the concerns that I've had with the governing, governing you know, forces at, at U.S. soccer. No matter how smart you are, you can't possibly have the knowledge of hundreds of thousands of other people who, who have been doing something for years and years and years. And so you want to have 
a game a venue. I've watched games at venues. Players have played games. There are folks that have gone to every game at every venue. How about talking to them and hearing what they say about which venue is easier to generate the atmosphere that you want to make? Now, you don't have to pick that venue, but it should be a very major factor in, in that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so sticking kind of with the venues, um, the women's game has grown considerably in the United States over the last few years and decade. Um, yeah. Recently, the perception is that the rest of the world is catching up in terms of talent and professional opportunities for women to play a game. How do you keep to continue the United States of being the leader? And with that, um, some of the games that the women have had to play um, qualifiers, the World Cup has been on turf. And it's been a major point of contention the last couple of years. How do you perceive um, U.S. soccer addressing this issue, and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I find it's a travesty. The, the, the last point, the, the this goes to the, the you know the lack of equality amongst you know the women's programs. There is. Let me be clear about this: if the men don't have to play on substandard fields, the women will not have to play on them either. And I don't think anybody should be. Certainly not at this level. You can talk about injuries and all that other stuff. It's a different game on turf. We all know that. If you've played it, you know it is a different game. I may take turf over a bad grass field, but if you give me a beautiful grass field like the U.S. national teams play on, I will take that any day of the year over a turf field. It is a different game, and that is what national teams should play on, period, men or women. There is no justification for it. You can talk about the business justifications. It's just... It, 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 when you look at the mission and spirit of U.S. soccer, there's absolutely no justification for that or any other inequalities which you can talk about if you want later. Um, in terms of the women, I, I, it, it's a concern. What, the fact of the matter is, is if you go back 20, 30 years ago, our women were playing soccer, and most women in other, in, in most other countries didn't have really organized women's soccer leagues. They do now, and so of course they're catching up. We need to make sure that our women, who are, I think, the best in the world, continue to stay the best in the world. And the way to do that is no different than what we were talking about on the men's side, and it was applying to everybody when I was saying it then, which is player development. Make soccer accessible. Make through lowering costs, through getting into inner cities and urban areas that are underrepresented, like U.S. Soccer Foundation does. Get coaches get coaching more accessible so we can get great coaches with kids early on and make sure we've got minimum standards that we want in terms of player development and then restructure on a state-by-state -state basis so things make sense for player development and on the elite level set up the state soccer centers so that you can identify and train the elite players that may feed into our national team. It's no different for men or women. That's great. Um, let, let, me, let me add one more thing with the women which is the NWSL has, has done a great job of sustaining itself, and I think it's probably at, you know, at a turning point right now where it's going to go from sort of survival into growth, right. and I think that's great. And that's another thing that we need to do. We need to make sure that that league is as stable and profitable as it can be, get into as many markets as we can, ultimately get a second-tier professional division in women's soccer, and make it as attractive as possible for women to join. Another simple way to do that that I don't think I've heard anybody talk about is post-playing career opportunities. 
you want to make the NWSL more attractive, when a, when a woman is deciding, should I take a shot and go play pro or take a shot at it or go into this great job somebody's offering me in business, well, it'd be great if we could say, come do this because you love it. It'll be the greatest experience of your life. We can pay you. You'll be a professional. And by the way, if it works out and you stay for a while, we've got great post-playing opportunities in the world of soccer. You won't miss out. That, was, that business will still be there maybe when, you, when you're done, but you'll be out. We have media opportunities, front office opportunities, U.S. soccer administration opportunities, and, and even an alumni network set up to help NWSL alums get jobs. Other sports do it, and, 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 you know, I went to Lafayette College, and for the last 10 years, I've had the juniors and seniors come to my law firm with the coaching staff, and we have about 30 or 40 alums come and give a little, you know, five or six guys, get up and talk about career paths and how you do whatever it is that that person is doing, and it becomes a networking night, and it becomes a chance for kids to get jobs and internships, and it's been, you know, successful for 10 years. That kind of stuff helps with marketing and gets an excitement and a reason bigger incentive for, for, for women to choose the path of the NWSL. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of with that, you talk a little bit about getting, having certain players making the decision whether or not to play competitive soccer or, or try to make the jump to go professional. Um, do you have any kind of plan in your mind to increase soccer's um, accessibility to U.S. citizens and and, and also in the, in the urban areas, the underserved communities. Um, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about, you know, we lost a player today um, to Mexico. So I'm curious about what, what your thoughts are about um, trying to cash in on what we already have and, yeah. and how, can, how, can we, how can we enhance, you know, the player pool that we already have. Yeah. Let me say, let me say two, two main ways. You're talking about accessibility. And in my mind, when you talk about accessibility and making it more accessible to the whole population, there are two things. Cost barriers, so pay to play, we've got to get rid of that. And number two, or at least reduce it. And number two, getting into underrepresented communities. And so let me talk very briefly about each of those. How do you get rid of pay to play or at least reduce it so that things become manageable? And we all know how much it costs to play soccer now. You want to play in an elite club, and it's, you know, $3,500 just yeah. to start. The, yep. the New York Times came out, I think it was about a year or two ago, and said the average family will spend $10,000 on a child if that child is a competitive soccer player. That's yep. insane. And, 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 and look, it's one thing if you're really elite, which it's still crazy to spend that much money, but that's true for kids that are, like I said before, love the game, just want to compete and play it at as high a level as they can. There are five ways that I've talked about reducing costs, raising the revenue to do it. One, we've got $150 million surplus we can tap into. Number two, we need to invest in people to make sure we're not leaving money on the table in terms of public funding, public grants. Number three, the U.S. Soccer Foundation has been tremendously successful at getting into inner cities and building fields and starting programs. We need to... And by the way, they do it in two ways. They don't just reach out to private businesses and raise money. They've now transitioned into tapping into uh, municipal funds. 
So going to the city of Atlanta and saying, we're going to build fields for you and run a soccer program in the city. Give us infrastructure money that you have earmarked, you know, money you have earmarked for infrastructure. Number four, getting to private businesses, doing a better job of it. You know, we represent here, and I, I do work for Bain Capital and TPG. Those are some of the biggest private equity firms in the world. Bain has, I think, about $75 billion under management. These are big companies. I speak their language. We need to get to them and show them why it makes sense for them to invest in U.S. soccer. The last way to reduce costs is solidarity payments. And let me say a quick thing about solidarity payments. Most people focus on the actual money that comes to you if you, act, if you have a player who succeeds. You, you train Clint Dempsey. He's in your program. He eventually signs a contract. You get a, you know, a payment. But it does a lot more than that. <clears throat> what solidarity payments do is they incentivize upfront investments in local clubs. It gives the club the opportunity to go out to a market we can't reach, the local market, the local business owner, the local resident, and say, hey, invest in my club. One, it's the right thing to do. But by the way, if we get it right, like I think we will, you're going to get your money back. And that upfront investment with, because of the potential of getting the incentive payment, is going to funnel money into these clubs to allow them to reduce the cost for players. So one, we're going to reduce the cost. The second thing that I talked about in terms of access is, again, uh, getting into the, the communities that are underrepresented. And again, that is following, investing in, in organizations like United States Soccer Foundation giving them more resources, fund them better, get their mission out there and follow those incentives and models to build fields and get to places where kids who we're not tapping into right now could get access to the game. That's great. Um, so we're about halfway through. I just want to um, remind people who hopped on late, um, we are here with Mike Winograd. Um, and if you want to ask questions, just hit on that little Q&A button in the bottom right and uh, send them directly to the panelists and, um, and we'll get them answered, if, you know, time permitting. Um, I'm going to move right along, Michael. Um, so as American Outlaws, our, our job, our goal is to represent our members, right? Make it the best fan experience that we can possible while supporting our, our men's and women's teams. I'm curious. Um, do you have any ideas or thoughts about how we can enhance the game day experience other than winning the World Cup? Um, <laughs> what are some of the things that you think that we can make, you know, make it better for our members? We, you know, we spend our all of our time trying to, you know, make make the support loud and, and make the, the section loud and have a great tailgate and a night before a party. I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are for our members. How do you think – you know, we've had very little interaction with the administration with Sino Galati over the past decade. I'm curious, how do you how you think you could enhance that as, as a president and, and make being a fan more fun? Yeah, I, so when I was at the Costa Rica game, we were not far from, we were just on the sideline, but not far from your section. And it was, and I think Alexi Lala sat with you guys. Yep. Um, we had seen him outside the stadium and um, I, there were, people were taking pictures with him and I, saw that he had, uh, you know, he was not far, and I was jealous because it's such an exciting place to be. And I, I think 
we need to involve you. It's, it's what I was saying before. When U.S. soccer has an event, a game, whether it's a scrimmage or any a friendly, it doesn't make a difference. It needs to treat the game as a special event. It is, it is the, you know, U.S. national team games are few and far between. Every single one should be a special experience. And part of that means not just talking to the venue, but coming up, sitting down with the American outlaws and saying, what can we do to help you make the experience better? For me, it's a celebration, right? I, I look at a game like that very different than I do going to a high school game where you go, you watch the game, you talk afterwards. But this is a celebration. It's an event. I think people should be there early tailgating. I think there should be events for kids and families. I think there should be former national team players there doing something, interacting with the fans, whether it's taking pictures, answering questions, getting up on a stage. I was at a game uh, many years ago in, um, in Copenhagen, and after the game ended, they had the players, it was FC Copenhagen, they had players come out to meet the fans in sort of where the concession part was in the inside of the stadium, got up on a little stadium, talked a little bit about the game and answered questions. Not about media, not about film, not it was in a, wasn't a press conference, it was to talk to the fans. That kind of stuff should be going on before the game. It's very easy to arrange. And I think it needs to, that planning process has to involve the supporter group. And so uh, for me, it's that experience pregame. During the game, it's about the game. You've got the atmosphere, which you guys do extremely well, and it's about the uh, the game. You know, the game is, it's a beautiful game. It's, it's a simple game. And, and in and of itself, it is this sort of finale of what I consider to be, you know, a, a great, you know, experience. Yeah. With that, we, we've had a lot of, uh, you know, we sent out a mem member survey um, about some of the things that certain members, you know, some of their areas of conflict. And one of the things was, was ticket prices for members, um, even yeah. for the supporter section, the standing room only. And, seems like we voice those opinions at certain times to deaf ears. And so yeah. I'm curious what, what you see in the value of supporters and how you intend to incorporate our voices and, and also make it easier for us to get more people yeah. um, and, and create that atmosphere that you guys need. Ticket prices are going to come way down, way down. And let me tell you why they haven't. The reason ticket prices are high right now is because, like in every other sport, it's about how much money can they get for a ticket to generate revenue and supply and demand, right? If, if, I can, if I can charge $150 a ticket and get it, why would I charge 64 So that, in my mind, is a penny-wise pound foolish. There's no question if you charge more money at a given game, you're going to make more money. But first of all, the massive amounts of revenue – are not in ticket sales anymore. They're just not. It's TV revenue. It's sponsorship revenue. It's not ticket sales. So what are you giving up? Some single-digit percentage of the revenue? It's not worth it. This, the other problem, and this has happened again across all sports, when you increase ticket prices, you may get it, but who can afford to buy it? Companies. You get a, it becomes a very corporate atmosphere. I will tell you, I've been to games in Europe, and, and the first time that I went to a Chelsea game, I said to my, you know, friends, and, and, I, and 
And maybe I was a little jaded because I'd gone to a Crystal Palace game when they were in the, in the championship. I'd gone to a Charlton game when they were in the championship. And you'd go to a Chelsea game and, I, you know, Premier League, it's great. But it was like it had become a little bit like the big pro sports here where it's just a corporate environment. It's not as much fun. If, I may not like to get out of my seat and start jumping up and down and screaming, but I love that atmosphere. And, and, and that for that fan, I think most fans, they like the energetic atmosphere. And you lose it when you raise the ticket prices to the point where people can't afford it other than companies and it becomes a corporate environment. So giving up some initial revenue, it's irrelevant, it, it, it's immaterial. It's a small amount of revenue you're giving up in the scheme of things. And if you're going to make the atmosphere better, you're going to gain in the long run. And it's the right thing to do. You know, games should be accessible to the fans, the people that want to go the most, not just the people who can afford it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, last question here, and then we're probably going to jump over to some of the Q&A stuff. Um, sure. U.S. soccer, the men's team right now doesn't have a coach. I'm curious what you consider qualities or characteristics um, that you would seek out if you're the president in, in hiring a new coach heading into a year um, that is pretty much about development? So first of all, like, again, what we were talking about earlier, that decision is not going to be made. It's not going to be the board of directors. It's going to be a committee of experts right. picking a coach. And by the way, there's a lot to go into it, right? There's, there's business folks have to have a say. Sponsors have to have a say. Fans should have a say. Of course, former coaches should have a very big say. Players should have a very big say. Technical directors, experts need to be involved in that decision. So that's so, sorry to interrupt, but what you're saying is, as opposed to it being one person essentially nominating somebody or a small board, you would like to involve fans and you would like to involve, involve a, a bigger variety of people than rather than just the board. It, 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 we will involve a committee. It will be a committee that is inclusive of experts and we're going to reach a consensus. That doesn't mean everybody on a committee, you know, when, if, you've, if you've served on committees, as I have many times and, and spearheaded them, doesn't mean everybody has to agree on the first choice. But what it does mean is we have to think through this thing deliberately and ultimately come to a consensus where we all say, okay, that decision makes sense. The crux of the people support it. That's the number one, that's the number one choice. And the others, even if it's a second choice for some, they have to say, yes, that makes sense. You need to build a consensus. And it's going to be inclusive. Absolutely. All the folks I just started, former coaches, current players, former players, Sponsors, business folks, fans, they need a seat at that table. Experts in the field need a seat at that table to really make the process meaningful. Um, that's number one. When you talk about what I personally um, would, would talk about the group and what we would, you know, we, we, we would sit down and figure out what the qualities are. If you're asking my own personal views, coaching a national team is different than coaching an MLS team. It's different than coaching a youth team. You don't have a lot of time with the players. You don't have time to rehearse different tactics over and over and over again. I mean, we all look at, you know, you look at pro teams and you look at a back line and how straight it is and how they move up and down, you know, like brigades. That takes obviously a tremendous amount of time and work. National teams don't have that. 
it's a limited amount of time in camp. So what, what the national team coach needs to be able to do is identify players, existing players, players with potential, figure out who the best players are in the system that's best for those players, and, and, and which players, not just the 11 best players, but which are the 11 best players that will, as a team, be the best team? It's a very difficult skill, and I think in my mind that's the most important thing for national team players, identifying, managing those players, and putting them in, in the right, um, you know, putting them in the right mix. Okay. Um, first question from the Q&A. Arnold from Lincoln, Nebraska, wants to know, when did you, just, when did you decide to run for U.S. soccer president? What was the moment you decided to run? So I had thought about the changes that need to happen in U.S. soccer for many years. And, and it goes back to the, the first time I really started thinking about the things in U.S. soccer that were broken or at least lagging behind others, because we've made great strides in many respects in the business side of this, was when I was coaching my, my oldest child, and I – in, back in, you know, 2009, 2010, and I began to realize that the landscape was so confusing. The youth landscape was a conglomerate of competing and overlapping businesses, and I didn't know which league was for what, and people said, well, this league's better than that league, but, but this, these teams from this league beat the teams in that league, and you need different passes for different games, and none of it made sense to me, and I said, this is not making a lot of sense. You've got players that are diluted and as a result, you've got players from the same town going to different clubs and playing in different leagues and having to travel two hours for games. As a result, there's something broken going on. I saw decisions as to, you know, I, I, I suspect if you asked Bob Bradley why he got fired, I don't think he'd know the answer. I don't think he'd know the criteria that were used to make that decision. I saw those decisions, and as a fan, as a love, you know, somebody who loves soccer, I said, how are these decisions being made? They just don't make sense. I'd least like to have some transparency and understand the thought process. So that started quite a while ago. The Trinidad and Tobago game was a threshold moment that really allowed for the potential to accomplish this change. It opened the door. It focused everybody's attention on what was going on. It was a spotlight on everything. Had that game never happened, Things would have continued on, and there would have been virtually no chance of affecting the change. When so that happened, not, sorry to interrupt. Had U.S. soccer not lost that match, do you think you would have potentially run? Had U.S. soccer not lost that match, I don't think there would have been a change in this regime. Yeah. I would have been talking to my friends and and colleagues and folks in soccer about the need for change, as many have. I don't think anybody would have thought it were a realistic possibility to unseat. Yeah. Senor Galati and, and change the way things were operating. This gave what, what the what the Trinidad and Tobago game did was open up the door to the possibility of change. Great. Um, Josh Moeller wants to know: Do we need more revenue or support at the moment for U.S. soccer to improve it? Well, we need more revenue in in, in order to reduce the cost barrier. Right. Other than that, I mean, we're, we're operating at a surplus. So I don't think revenue is the problem. And, and again, the mission of U.S. soccer is not the same mission as any private business where it's to maximize profit. And when I sit down, I'm, I, when I sit down with a CEO of a company 
who's got, you know, $40 billion or $10 billion in revenue each year. And you talk about the business interests, as we have to when we're talking about the legal issues and balancing them with the business interests and the, what makes sense from the business perspective. Ultimately, it is how do I maximize revenue? And if they've got shareholders because they're a public company, they have to answer to the public shareholders, how am I maximizing revenue? That is not the goal of U.S. soccer. Revenue is important in order to enable us to achieve some of the things we want to achieve. But the ultimate goal is making soccer the most prominent sport in this country, making it the most popular sport and increasing the quality so that we're competing at the top level in the world. Of course, you need some money to do that, but ultimately, that's not the single most important thing. And I think we're doing just fine on the revenue side with a few exceptions. Okay. Um, we have about 15 minutes left, so I'm going to try to get through a few more of these questions. Sure. Um, Dan from AO Austin, can you comment on Jonathan Gonzalez's decision? We, we talked a little bit about this today, but can you comment on his decision to, to choose Mexico from, as opposed to the U.S.? And why do you think that that, that took place? Wow, I, you know, it's, I can I can comment to say that it's disappointing, and it's and it's and it's another red flag that we're doing something wrong. Because you know, I look at playing for the national team. When I grew up, players didn't make any money. There weren't I don't think there were even stipends for playing on the national team. It was the honor. The idea was if you're a great player, you can go make money in the in your with your professional club. But it is an absolute privilege honor to put on the jersey of your, you know, country and play for your country. It's disheartening that somebody would select another country. People have options. And I suspect that, you know, look, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that go into that, playing opportunities, prospects for winning a, a World Cup. But, but in one way or another, I suspect that he looked at the U.S. soccer landscape and, and, and we didn't do a good enough job. We didn't do a good enough job to convince him, hey, don't just do it because, you know, you, you can and this is the right thing to do, but also we've got a great product. I suspect he didn't believe as much in the product as we needed to, you know. And by the way, I, I, you can't fault him. I mean, we're in this election talking about how we need to make that product better. We need to figure out how decisions were being made on coaching and, and venues and all that kind of stuff. There was, we are at the back end of what I suspect, if you sat down and talked with the national team players and the current team, was a very difficult period uh, under Jurgen Klinsmann, where players didn't quite know where they fit into to things and how what was expected of them. And you can treat professionals and a national team like Sabudio and, and pretend that they're not human beings and you, oh, well, you just move this guy here and this person there and move her over here. At the end of the day, Athletes are affected by their environments, and they need a good environment to be able to achieve, you know, what they're capable of achieving. And I don't think we had that. I think we're going to get it right, though. And 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 I think this is again another wake-up call. Okay. Um, Corey from Lincoln asks, who are your favorite players from the last few years, and why? I mean, being a former player yourself, you probably recognize some of the some of the the young talent that we have, and uh, yeah. who have been the guys that have performed lately in the past few years? Uh, you know, I would love. You know, you you can't you, you can't answer that question without talking about Christian Pulisic. 
you know, I, I saw him playing, um, you know, I saw him playing with, very early on in his days with the national team, and it, I think, like everybody, it was obvious that he was really special. I think, you know, Tyler Adams is somebody I've gotten to see with the Red Bulls, and, and I think those guys are part of a crop of players um, that are really promising. Um, I, on, on the women's side, you know, I thought Abby Wambach was spectacular, one of the most fun players I've ever seen play. Uh, I was disappointed like everybody when the time came for her to retire. But I think, you know, Crystal Dunn is a, a tremendous um, player, and I have high hopes for her. She happens to have grown up about a block and a half from where I grew up and really? where my, my, uh, my childhood home uh, still is. Um, but I think she's a really exciting uh, potential player who's going to score a lot of goals and, and, and have a real serious impact. Okay. Josh um, would like to know, what age group do you think we need to be the most focused on in terms of development? This is one of the interesting things. When you look at an, a, tip, a typical model rewards good coaches by pushing them up. So you can enter wherever you want in a club, and if you're really good, you'll move to the 14s. If you're really good, you'll move to the 16s and the 18s and eventually the pro level. It's the way it's sort of set up in Europe. Ironically, I think the, that 8 to 11-year age group is when you're actually developing the basic great habits, and it's an absolute critical time. It requires a different type of a coach, different skill set. It is far less tactical, much more technical, much more teaching, right? It's, it's a lot less managing when you get to the, to the national team. When you're dealing with 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds, you're teaching them. You need to be able to communicate as a teacher to teach the game, to teach the techniques. So I think, you know, I think the younger age groups are really overlooked quite a bit. And I've seen it. I've seen coaches who are good and know what they're doing at the younger age groups. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you have a tremendous, a much larger percentage of kids from that great training at the younger age groups going on to succeed later on. Okay. Um, Gary from DCS, we have seen a lot of injuries for the women, uh, the women's national team, probably due to the fact that they play so many games a year. Would you consider reducing the amount of games that the women play um, to rest our players for the matches that matter. So let me I, you, let me just make sure I understood that was was would I reduce the number of teams the women national team plays so that they can the rest up matches, those games? Yeah, the number of matches yeah. that they play. You know that 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 is something that really is is again I can't answer that without talking to the national team players, the national team coach, and then weighing against you know the the there are benefits right we 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 have to remember. There are clearly benefits to playing more games. Exposure, marketing, sponsorship, television, revenue, there, there, there are advantages to playing more games. But we can't lose sight of the fact that ultimately the most important part of this is the team. And so we need to sit down with the coach, we need to sit down with the players, and we need to figure out what makes sense. There's going to be a schedule where people say it's too much, you're going to hurt us, we're going to be injured, we're not going to be fresh for important games. And in those cases, you take the games off the table. There are going to be games where, where the players and coach say, not a problem. 
and those games stay on the table. There may be a gray area where you have to sit down and say, listen, this would be great to play this game for the following reasons. In an ideal world, maybe not, you wouldn't want to, but here are the great reasons to play them. What do you think? Are these word reasons enough? And it's a decision. It's a collective decision as to what makes sense. Okay, we have uh, about eight minutes left, so I'm gonna try to get, got quite a few questions here. I'm gonna try to just pick and choose. Um, Jack from AO Kansas City asks, what other U.S. soccer president candidates have impressed you and why? And also, can you describe how the election process has gone? What are your interactions with fellow candidates and the voters? So my, my uh, the election process, like many other processes at U.S. soccer, is deficient. It is, it is not an appropriate or well-defined process given okay. the, 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 the organization. I think they're stumbling along a little bit, and we'll change that. We'll catch them up. Like I said before, the, the governance of U.S. soccer is not what it needs to be for a $150 million a year company, and it's what I do for a living, talking to, to people and fixing that. In terms of talking, I'm sort of going backwards. In terms of talking, uh, yeah, I'm in regular contact with most of the candidates. Um, I think I have very good relationships with the folks that I'm talking to. I have uh, good relationships. I have decent relationships with everybody. I don't have a bad relationship with anyone. Uh, and I'm out talking to the voters a lot. I've had great conversations with everybody from Don Garber to Sunil Gulati to uh, the U.S. Women's National Team to members of the Athletes Council um, to state associations, adult and youth, you know, U.S. club soccer, sort of everybody, talking about ideas and hearing people's thoughts and starting that process of socializing the best path forward. Uh, in terms of, you know, what I've been impressed by, there are lots of, you know, there, there, are, there are certain candidates who have very impressive qualities. And I'll, I'll, look, I'll mention three. You know, Eric Winalda uh, is passionate. He's charismatic. He knows the issues that soccer is confronting pretty well and has lived through a lot of them. But Kyle Martino is, is, is bright. He's sensible, he's level-headed, and he's, he presents very well. He's a polished guy. Um, Kathy Carter has run a business, or at least had a hand in running a business, for several years. Uh, and that business happens to be in the world of soccer. So those are all, when I look at those skills at a good level, those are all skills that are pertinent to being president of U.S. soccer. Um, what I think I bring to the table is sort of the whole package at a very high level understand the game. I understand it from all the different perspectives. I understand the business side and I've lived through it and I have the skill set every day with the biggest companies in the world. You know, I'm putting to use the skills that we need to, to really move U.S. soccer forward. Okay. Adam Ronski asks, do you think it is important for men's national team players to be playing in Europe or is MLS good enough? You know, we need to get MLS better because ideally we want MLS to be one of the preeminent leagues in the world. If you're talking about national team players from a pure national team perspective and winning games, you want them competing at the highest level they can. And typically on the men's side, that means going to Europe. Uh, what we want to do is raise the level of MLS, which is, you know, when you think about where MLS was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I mean, it's, it's night and day. It's, 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 it's grown a lot 
but we need to keep making, you know, keep improving that level so that that level of soccer in MLS makes it sensible for those elite athletes on our national team to stay here, not just for marketing reasons, but for the level of play and, and keep their skills to the level that they need to be. If you're the U.S. soccer, if you're elected the U.S. soccer president, what's your first agenda as as president? I have three. It's the three key initiatives. Okay. I'm going to institute better governance. We're going to make everything transparent, and we're going to set up committees so that critical decisions are made inclusively based on merit and transparently. Number two, I'm not going to wait till the end of the CBAs to to make sure that the women's and men's programs are equal. We're gonna solve that very quickly. We're gonna to get to a table. We're gonna redo the CBAs as parties. We're gonna all talk about it and, and, and make it happen so that there's absolute equality. And number three, we're gonna start exploring the different ways to reduce cost barriers uh, in both playing and coaching, education. Um, we're gonna get that started right away because all three of those things are critical. Part and parcel to that is restructuring on a state-by-state -state basis, you know, player development, restructuring on a state-by-state -state basis, sitting down with the state associations and the folks, the interested parties, and getting the state soccer center project underway. Nick from AO Toulouse, Tuscaloosa. With some famous players possibly retiring this year, you consider would you consider testimonial matches for those legends that may be hang it up for both the men's and the women's side. What kind of matches? Test Testimonials. Testimonial matches. Um, absolutely. You know, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, there is nothing that is in, as inspiring. You know, that, that, that's fun for the older folks because you're looking at players that you grew up with and it's, I think, a source of inspiration for kids. I got to go to a testimonial match when I was playing professionally in Israel. Uh, it was a crop of, of former Israeli national team players playing against a group of players from around the world, including Michelle Platini and, and um, you know, a, 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 a Rude Gillett and, and a, a bunch of great, uh, you know, former uh, world-class players. And, and there are very few things that are as fun and meaningful as, as those kind of games. Okay. Um. So we have a few minutes left. Um, I want to give you the opportunity, um, let's just say in two minutes, to kind of talk about how you want to incorporate the views of the fans. I know you talked about your three initiatives. Um, I'm, I'm just curious why you think that fans should get behind you and and say that, that Michael, you are, you're the guy. You're the guy to, that we need to take us to the next level. And, um, why are you going to be the best candidate for U.S. soccer president? You know, it, it, it's because I'm the best candidate. You know, if you look at what I'm talking about and my ideas, I would hope and I think that they resonate. It's the types of change that we need. And, again, I'm not a burn-it-down kind of person. I, you know, we've made great strides in this country in soccer. You know, we, we've, got, we've got a whole massive group of supporters that follow the team. We've got – great marketing deals. We've got great uh, television deals. The financial side has, has come a long way in 20 years. We need to get better 
at all the stuff that we've ignored for too long. Right? We need to re we need to get everything fixed on the youth side, on the player development side, on the quality of the on the field type stuff. I understand soccer from all perspectives. If this is a if, if the criteria for being president is who's the best player, that's not me. Right? We can let can let Eric Winalda and maybe Hope Solo fight that one out. But I played professionally. I coached collegiately. I managed. I started up a, a, a second division A league professional team, and I understand soccer. Not only that, but I've got the actual ability and skills and experience to implement these changes. People have to ask themselves. Look, it, it's great to say, you know, we want, we want to, you know, we want to bring in promotion relegation. We want to do this. Well, how is it going to get done? I've actually been in the boardroom with folks figuring out paths forward. And it takes intelligence and it takes open-mindedness and candor and the ability to, in real time, understand different perspectives, synthesize facts, and articulate persuasively a common path forward. It's a skill and it's difficult. If it weren't, I'd be out of a job. I can get all of this done. I've got the soccer side. I've got the business side. I've got the independence. I can actually do all of this. You talked about involving the fans. You know, when, when I started up the team in Staten Island, the Staten Island Vipers, one of the very first things I did was reach out to the community and establish grassroots connections with the local clubs, put on free clinics, brought some ex-Cosmos like Hubert, uh, like um, um, Bogicevic, uh, to put on clinics, ran them, coached clinics, and established a grassroots program. I involved... When we picked the team name, I came up with three names, put them out in the Staten Island Advanced newspaper, and put it out to a vote to Staten Island. Their team, you guys picked the name. They came up with the Staten Island Vipers amongst the three. It's my favorite. I was thrilled. But we involved the fans. We had questions. We set up a radio show, and the, the media was spectacular on Staten Island. We set up a radio show, and we took questions every week from the fans. What's going well? What's not going well? What do you want to see? That is how you involve fans because, you know, look, the, the, the fans, they, they are the, the, the 12th man, right? I mean, they, they are the atmosphere in the stadium, and that atmosphere is an advantage on the field. It's an advantage to marketers and sponsors if you want to talk about revenue. It's an essential part of the game, and you need to involve that aspect of the game in, in, in the development of, a, of an organization and a, and a team. Okay, great. Well, um, I think that pretty much wraps up our time. Uh, on behalf of the American Outlaws, I want to say thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time to do this, and thank you for um, taking the time out of your out of your life to pursue this. And um, we wish you all the best. And um, I'm sure we will uh, be talking to you soon. Thank you, and, I, and and again, I appreciate you and and everything you all are doing. To, uh, to make this a productive and meaningful election. It's important. Great. Well, thanks again, Michael. Um, we will make some of this, um, the video public um, for our members. Um, for those members that are tuned in now, be sure to tune in tomorrow at the same time. We will have Kyle Martino on. So thanks again, Michael, and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye.